Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 64. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on St. Patrick's Day 2022 in Austin, Texas. I'm not in my usual location. Normally, I do this really early in the morning to cut down on outside noise, but now it's mid-afternoon, and I'm trying to get through this so I can watch some basketball And there's lawn guys in our neighborhood. Actually, they're employed by me, so it's kind of a pain. So I've come to an office in my wife's psychotherapy building and hoping that will be better, but there's more traffic outside, so we'll just see how this goes. Anyway, in addition to it being Patty's Day and the first day of the NCAA men's basketball tournament, today, March 17th, is the 405th anniversary of the death of Pocahontas as she sailed out the Thames estuary with her husband, John Rolfe, and their baby son, Thomas. Before we get to the main history topic of the day, there's a current events item that caught my eye. It's always a little risky to talk about current events on a history podcast because people might listen to this episode years from now. You'll have to Cut me some slack and refer to the date. It's March 17th, 2022 right now. Anyway, there's an amusing item in the news at the weird intersection of Texan politicians, an old provision of the United States Constitution, and the Russo-Ukraine war, which is raging right now. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution confers unto Congress the power to grant letters of mark and reprisal and make rules concerning captures on land and water. There's a great deal to be said about this obscure provision, or at least I can find a great deal to be said about it, and I imagine that many moons from now I will do an episode on it. It gets short shrift in most law school con law courses, though, probably because it hasn't been used since the War of 1812. But I actually remember the discussion of the provision from my own first year at Michigan Law School. Many of us, including the professor, knew what a letter of mark was. Longstanding and attentive listeners to this podcast know it as a license granted by a government to permit the capture of enemy shipping and other assets. Basically, a letter of mark turns a would-be pirate who would be subject to prosecution in even his own country, into a privateer who is only subject to prosecution if he gets caught by the enemy. This enables the privateer to legitimize any captured prizes, in return for which the issuing authority gets a cut. Now, our Constitution authorizes letters of mark and reprisal. Nobody in my class in 1984, not even the very learned professor, knew whether a letter of mark and reprisal was just a wordy way of saying letter of mark, or whether a letter of reprisal was a different thing from a letter of mark. Well, in the last year, I've learned that these were two different things. Subtly so, but nevertheless different. Long-standing and very attentive listeners to this podcast might have picked up the nuance all the way back in episode 43, Drake burns down the West Indies and St. Augustine. On that massive privateering raid of 1585 and 1586, Drake not only had a letter of mark, as he'd had on his circumnavigation six or seven years before, but also commissions of reprisal, 
that Elizabeth I had granted to English merchants who had suffered losses at the hands of the Spanish. You may recall that Philip II had been grabbing English merchant ships and imprisoning their crews. Elizabeth's commissions of reprisal authorized aggrieved English merchants to grab Spanish assets in recompense wherever they might be found. The commissions of reprisal were in effect transferable, so when Drake sailed, he did so with letters of reprisal granted to those merchants, as well as his own letter of mark. I therefore conclude that the provision of our Constitution provides for two different things, letters of mark and letters of reprisal. Now, at least some history buffs have been hoping that someday, for some reason, Congress would get around to issuing a letter of mark, which, as I said, it has not done since the War of 1812. It seems that one such person now sits in the House of Representatives, one Lance Gooden of the Texas 5th Congressional District. He has introduced H.R. 6869, which provides, in pertinent part, the President of the United States is authorized and requested to commission, under officially issued letters of mark and reprisal, so many of privately armed and equipped persons and entities as, in the judgment of the President, the service may require, with suitable instructions to the leaders thereof, to employ all means reasonably necessary to seize outside the geographic boundaries of the United States and its territories, any yacht, plane, or other asset of any Russian citizen who is on the list of specially designated nationals and blocked persons maintained by the Office of Foreign Assets Control of the Department of the Treasury. Naturally, as exciting as this bill could have been, I'm obviously disappointed in Representative Gooden for two reasons. First, what we need here are letters of mark, full stop. Yes, if there are Americans who've had assets stolen or destroyed by Russia, and no doubt there are, we might separately consider issuing them letters of reprisal. Although one can easily imagine how that could get out of hand. But if the point is to grab assets of sanctioned persons, then a letter of mark will do just fine, thank you. The more egregious part of Gooden's bill, which presumably stands no chance of actually becoming law, is that it delegates the sacred power of Congress to issue letters of mark to the president. Not only ought this offend the sensibility of Representative Gooden, a self-proclaimed conservative who no doubt would say that he cares deeply about the Constitution, as do I, but it actually undermines the argument that the right to wage war is reserved to Congress. The letters of mark and reprisal clause is cited in cases related to the president's ability to wage quasi-wars without authorization from Congress. Okay, that out of the way, I will remove my tongue from my cheek and take you back to the early 17th century. If you've been listening along, you'd be fair to wonder... When, dude, are we getting past the first decade of the 1600s? Fair enough, since we first entered the 17th century in mid-December. I warned you then that North America was about to get very busy, at least from the European point of view. Both the English and the French would do what they had not done in the long centuries since Columbus, establish a surviving permanent settlement in the New World. Now they both had done 
the English at Jamestown, and the French at Quebec, after various painful false starts that included first failed French attempts in Florida and Maine, and the English failures on the outer banks of North Carolina and at the Popham Sagatahawk colony on the coast of Maine. So by the end of the decade, which is now upon us, the only non-Indians in today's United States were English and a smattering of other Europeans at Jamestown. A motley crew of Spanish and enslaved Africans or their descendants at St. Augustine, and Spanish and their descendants, including some mestizos, at Santa Fe and in various pueblos around New Mexico. Outside of those settlements, there were probably a few scattered survivors or their descendants living among various tribes. These probably included a small number of Roanoke colony survivors and or their descendants, various European fishermen along the Atlantic coast who'd been captured or gone to live among the Indians rather than cling to a brutal life at sea, and perhaps descendants of the four survivors of the Narvice expedition. Esteban, at least, was said to have been quite the ladies' man. And maybe the 20 or so English sailors that Francis Drake left ashore on the Pacific Northwest in 1579. It's also possible, but unlikely, that a few Turks or Africans had been set ashore in North America toward the end of Francis Drake's voyage to the West Indies in 1586. There might also have been descendants of Spanish who had raped or otherwise had relations with Indians during the Soto, Coronado, Luna, and Pardo expeditions, all of which we covered at length. So that's it, really. In the next decade, the non-native population of today's United States would grow considerably, at least in percentage terms. The population of Jamestown would grow from around 280 when John Smith left Jamestown in the fall of 1609, to 1,226 in April 1620, notwithstanding a persistent 80% mortality rate. The 1620 population famously included 20-odd Africans arrived only the year before and sold into slavery. Meanwhile, the population of St. Augustine in 1610 was over 400, including 36 or so blacks, most or all in some condition of involuntary servitude. Many of the men in the Spanish garrison were married, and baptismal records show natural increase at St. Augustine, running around 10 baptized babies a year. Notwithstanding that, changes in the size of the Spanish garrison kept the population growth there in check, and by 1620 there were still fewer than 500 non-Indians in America's oldest European city which was still maintained more for military purposes than colonial expansion. I was not able to find good numbers for Santa Fe in either 1610 or 1620. Any help there would be welcomed, and we'll get a shout-out on the podcast. But my guess is that the non-indigenous population of Santa Fe in the Pueblo country in New Mexico was smaller than both St. Augustine and Jamestown. And, of course, in 1620 the pilgrims on the Mayflower would arrive in Massachusetts. At the same time, at least some North American Indian populations were now getting hammered by European diseases. There is considerable evidence that the Indians of the southeastern states had suffered from disease spread by the Soto Entrada in 1539-42, to 42, 
very attentive listeners will remember the theory that Soto's escaped pig spread pathogens that killed off the huge Indian populations that settled along the Mississippi and elsewhere in the Southeast. Even 25 years later, the Pardo expedition saw none of the big settlements in the Carolinas mentioned in the Soto Chronicles. During the second decade of the 17th century, the big populations along the coast of New England, the Dawnland, would be reduced by 80% or more by one disease or another thought to have been introduced along with captured European sailors and fishermen. In all likelihood, the aggregate population of the eastern United States had fallen considerably in the first 20 years of the century, notwithstanding the big percentage increase at Jamestown. I have now read the better part of six books on Jamestown and environs during the period. If I go through all of that at my usual pace, it might be months before we get to the critical events of 1619 and 1622. Not only would that be tedious for all of us, but the Virginians in our audience would blow their brains out if they had to listen to my pronunciation of Powhatan, Powhatan, for another dozen episodes. Never fear, this episode is going to run through an overview of Jamestown from John Smith's departure until the fateful years of the early 1620s, so you have a bird's eye view of events. Then in the next few episodes, we'll look closely at a few of the ugly and important moments along the way, and maybe a couple of stories that are fun and interesting, even if not of great significance to the history of the Americans. I'm hoping to put out shorter and more frequent episodes during this stretch and then get back to the regular kind of mostly weekly cadence by mid-April. Of course, I follow my muse here, so anything might happen, but that's my plan as I write this anyway. We were last in Jamestown on October 4th, 1609, when John Smith burned because his powder bag had ignited while he slept set sail for England, never to return to Virginia. John Ratcliffe, Gabriel Archer, and George Percy had all returned with the third supply of the colony that August, and they immediately went to work turning Smith out of office. You will recall that the flagship of the third supply, the Sea Venture, had been lost at sea in a hurricane in July 1609, and unbeknownst to anybody at the colony or in London, had been cast away on Bermuda. The six months or so after John Smith's departure would be the most difficult in all the extremely difficult history of the Jamestown colony. The new leadership takes a more confrontational approach with the local tribes and relations with the Powhatans break down. The Powhatan Confederacy cuts off food and attacks colonists at every opportunity. Ratcliffe dies gruesomely in late 1609 or early 1610, having been lured into a trap by Indians who had offered to trade corn for copper. That winter, most of the colony, including Gabriel Archer, dies of starvation, or from diseases after having been weakened by starvation. Yes, Virginia, there is cannibalism. We shall return to the starving time in future episodes because it is Necessary to understand how close Jamestown came to abandonment. In May 1610, the survivors of the Sea Venture wreck miraculously arrived from Bermuda on two ships they had built over the previous 10 months, 
the aptly named Deliverance and Patience. These survivors include Sir Thomas Gates, the much-delayed governor of the colony, Captain Christopher Newport, and one John Rolfe, who would go on to establish the commercial viability of the colony and enter into a marriage that would secure peace with the Powhatan Confederacy for as long as Wahoon Sunacock, the primary chief Powhatan, would live. Gates sized up the terrible situation and would immediately impose martial law and a strict code of conduct with severe penalties for transgressions. Also that spring, Thomas West, Lord de la War, an awesome name if there ever was one, would be appointed the next governor of the colony by the crown. Gates at this point believed by the company directors in London to have been lost at sea. He and the fourth supply depart England on April 1st, 1610. On June 7th, before De La War and the fourth supply arrive, Gates decides that Jamestown had become untenable and prepares to abandon the colony. The still starving settlers climb aboard the ships and sail down the James River toward home. The next day, June 8th, they encounter De La War sailing up the river. He orders everybody to turn around, and they reach the abandoned site of the colony on June 10, 1610. It had been abandoned, but only for three days. That summer, the war with the Powhatans intensifies in an escalating series of killings and retaliations. In July, Thomas Gates attacks Kecaton in reprisal for the killing of a settler and kills or drives off the Indians. And in August, George Percy attacks the Pespahegs, burning their houses, cutting down their cornfields, and kidnapping women, children, and their queen. The English execute them. Gates sails for England at the end of July. The winter of 1610-11 to is another tough one, but the colony is better supplied, so somewhat fewer men die. The population had reached 375 during the summer of 1610, but between casualties from fighting the Powhatans death from disease, and departures, there are still only 150 settlers remaining by the spring of 1611. One of those is John Rolfe, who begins experimenting with growing tobacco using seeds imported from the West Indies. Another is Lord de la War, who leaves in March to go back to England. In May 1611, Sir Thomas Dale arrives with 300 men many of them with armor and weapons, and a new load of provisions. Dale spends the summer beating up on the locals, turning the tide in the First Powhatan War. In August 1611, 280 new settlers arrive with Lieutenant Governor Thomas Gates, and in September, Dale leads 350 settlers and soldiers to establish a new settlement called Henrico, upriver from Jamestown and about 12 miles to the southeast of today's Richmond. Henrico, or the city of Hendricus, was named after Henry, Prince of Wales, the eldest son of King James I. 1612 was a light year, historically speaking. James I authorized a reorganization of the Virginia Company, giving it more autonomy. The most important innovation is that it would be permitted to raise capital through lotteries rather than the actual sale of equity, which at this point must have been quite diluted. This was, in effect, an early example of crowdfunding, 
Kickstarter and GoFundMe and every charity raffle at every county fair stands on the shoulders of the Virginia Company, which, I have to say, amuses me no end. Also that summer or fall, John Rolfe shipped back the first crop of his sweet Virginian tobacco, which would kick off the first cash crop boom in English North America. In 1613, Captain Samuel Argall, the dude who randomly sailed into Jamestown in the spring of 1609 and unofficially told John Smith that he'd been fired, conspired with two tribes of the northern Chesapeake region to capture Pocahontas. The English would use her, supposedly the paramount chief Powhatan's most beloved daughter, as a hostage to secure the return of prisoners, stolen weapons and tools, and to get food. Powhatan would release a few prisoners and send in some corn, but drew the line at returning the weapons and tools. This would, not surprisingly, irritate his daughter no end, who was quite clear that she thought her father should pay the damn ransom. Good thing for Powhatan that there wasn't texting back then. Anyway, the war would continue and Pocahontas would remain captive. Gradually, the pious John Rolfe would become smitten by Pocahontas. She would accept Christian baptism and the name Rebecca, and on April 5, 1614, the two would marry. The marriage would bring peace between the English and the Powhatans for the rest of Wahoon Sunnacock's life, and then some. At some point between 1614 and 1616, the Paramount Chief Powhatan would decline. He would die in 1618. During this period, his close relative, maybe a brother, maybe a cousin, Opakankanaw, would become the de facto ruler of the Powhatan Confederacy. By the spring of 1616, there are no fewer than six English settlements in the jurisdiction of Jamestown with an English population of 351. Everybody and their brother is growing tobacco. Pleasure. It's really hip. Have you noticed that more men are smoking cigars today? On January 30th, 1615, by my count, a very respectable 44 weeks after their marriage, John and Rebecca Rolfe gave birth to their only child, son Thomas. In May 1616, John Rolfe, Rebecca, and Thomas would go to England. Pocahontas would be feted at the highest reaches of London society, be an important propagandist for the Virginia Company, have an awkward meeting with John Smith, and, very sadly, die of pneumonia at the beginning of the voyage home on March 17, 1617. John does what any father in that situation would have done. He leaves Thomas with a guardian and goes back to Virginia without his family. John Rolfe would die in 1622, probably of natural causes, and never see his son again. This is actually a good result for me, even if it was a little sad for Thomas, for he eventually became my great-to-the-ninth grandfather, a legacy I share with roughly 100,000 Americans and English. Had baby Thomas died on account of the mosquitoes of Virginia or the poor parenting of his planter father, this podcast would not exist. A butterfly flaps its wings. 
1618, Wahun Senecock, the paramount chief Powhatan, would die. The rules of succession would put his brother Opechapam in charge. Opechapam would take the name Itoyatan as his chiefly name. The English regarded Itoyatan as ineffective, and indeed Opechankanaw, the brilliant and sophisticated man who had been Don Luis and before that Paquaquinio, would expand his power and grow in popularity during Itoyatan's reign. On November 18, 1618, the Virginia Company adopted a new charter known as the Great Charter. It did three important things. First, it lifted the martial law that had prevailed since the darkest moments of the First Powhatan War in 1610. It also authorized a general assembly in which English men of property would have some capacity for self-governance. This was, on the one hand, not a broadly democratic government. On the other hand, it was the first step in the long march to popular sovereignty in the future United States. Finally, the Great Charter provided for the widespread ownership of land by Englishmen in Virginia by making grants to men who went there to settle and plant a farm. This had the effect of attracting a big surge of immigrants, and it eliminated the problem of collective or corporate land ownership, which had stifled agricultural productivity since the founding of the colony. In late 1619, John Rolfe would observe that, quote, for now knowing their own land, they strive and are prepared to build houses and to clear their own grounds ready to plant, which giveth great encouragement and the greatest hope to make the colony flourish that ever yet happened to them. Of course, all of this made the Great Charter a very bad deal for the local Indian tribes. Opakankana would accelerate his preparations for war. 1619 would be a famously important year in the history of Jamestown, the year's notoriety considerably amplified by the 1619 project of the New York Times. From July 31st to August 4th, 1619, the General Assembly of Virginia, authorized by the Great Charter, meets for the first time. Its very first act would be to set a floor under the price of tobacco, a policy response to the collective action problem in agriculture that survives in United States government policy to this very day. A lot of things got going in Jamestown in 1619, and one of them was the long American tradition of manipulating the prices of crops. Then a few weeks later, 20 or so Africans would arrive at Jamestown in bondage, having been stolen from a Portuguese ship that carried them as slaves. These Africans would be sold and enslaved. They are thought to be the first Africans sold into slavery in English North America. Of course, long-standing listeners know that the Spanish had brought Africans or their descendants into today's United States numerous times, at least as far back as the expedition of Lucas Vasquez de Ayun to the coast of South Carolina and Georgia in 1526. In the spring of 1620, a census of the English settlements in Virginia counts 1,194 European colonists and 32 Africans. Of these 1,226 people, 898 are men, 141 are women, and 192 are children. There are also four Virginia Indians living among the settlers about which we have no surviving information. Neither 
Have I found out how the 20-odd Africans who arrived in August 1619 became 32 by April 1620? The gender imbalance worried the Virginia Company. So in May 1620, it dispatched 90 single women to Jamestown, and then another batch in the summer of 1621. The surging English population and their geographic dispersion worried Opakankanaw, so he planned for war. He would lull the English into a false sense of security by pretending to be interested in converting to Christianity. They allowed his men into their strongholds to trade, failed to build defenses at their increasingly scattered plantations and small settlements, and broadly let their guard down. On March 22, 1622, precisely 400 years ago this coming Tuesday, Opakankanaw would spring his trap. The brutal Second Powhatan War would be fought over the next 10 years. This is a good place to stop right now. The purpose of this episode was to give you an overview of the 13 years between John Smith's departure and the start of the Second Powhatan War which would very nearly finish the English and Virginia. In coming weeks, we will take a closer look at several of the key moments, including the starving time of 1609-1610, the sea venture wreck, the kidnapping and marriage of Pocahontas, and the peace that prevailed after that for years, the events of 1619, I believe I will argue that they are not quite as significant as some historians and journalists want them to be, and Opakankanaw's war. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast, and sometimes I write blog posts on the website. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>